We're going to finish up the book of Nehemiah today. We've been in this series for over a year now, and we are almost done with it, praise the Lord. But last week we got into the book of Nehemiah, and you, you remember the uh, premise of the entire book is to build the wall. And I showed you that really funny Donald Trump video. I couldn't help myself. And I promised you I wouldn't do it again, and I kept my promise. So you're welcome. But, but uh, you know, when we talk about that and you look at what is going on and you look at the series of events that led up to the point that we are now. You've got in the book of Ezra, after they've been exiled for 70 years, as Cyrus sends them back, Zerubbabel sends them back and says, hey, go and build the temple with a lot of turmoil and things along the way. And the reason Cyrus' heart was softened for that is because of the fact that they, uh, you know, the prophet Isaiah wrote down that Cyrus is going to be the guy that do this. God used him 150 years in advance of Cyrus even being born, So, which is amazing, right? And so that happens, and of course later Ezra goes to serve the temple. In between those two events, you've got the story of Esther, which actually saved the people from destruction from a guy named Haman that had King Saul done what he was supposed to do in the first place. Haman's not even a thought. He never happens, all of this stuff. I mean, you just see these sequence of events that are coming in all to thwart the overall plan of God. And that is what we're going to land on next week. We're going to put the big bow on this bad boy, and we are going to land this plane. I have never in my life done a series this long, ever. And honestly, I'm okay if I never do it again. We just follow the Lord, okay? But when we get to Nehemiah, the temple's built, everything's done, the people are there. And, and Hanani comes to uh, Nehemiah, who is the king's cupbearer. He's an upper, uppity guy. He's a, he's, you know, the cupbearer is a, a position of power in the kingdom. He is given the authority. Uh, he carries the king's signet ring around with him, which is his authority. He's the one that takes a little drink of the wine and tastes the food prior to the king eating it to make sure that it's not poison, right? Probably not a promotion any of us are ever going to look for, okay? But the bottom line, that's where he was. And so it's a, a, a position of trust. And so he finds favor in the heart of the king, and the king says, you know what? Go back and build the wall because there's all these people that are attacking him. Go and build the wall. Protect your people. And he, and he plays on the emotions of the king. And he, he says, you know, this is where my fathers were buried. And that meant a big deal in the Persian world because that was, that was everything. That was their land. This is our heritage. And so he goes back there with the blessing of the king. And they begin to build. And they're getting the wall done and everything like that. But not without opposition. There's always opposition. There's always going to be opposition. No matter what you do. When you're doing the things that God's called you to do. Even with the favor of the Lord upon you, there are are going to be there's going to be opposition the bottom line is though is that it can't stop what God has called you to do you might as well get used to it in this world you will have trouble but be of good heart I have overcome the world and so here we are he's facing opposition from every direction right north east south off on the west what's on the west it's the water right the Mediterranean Sea and so he's getting it all over there. They're trying to stop him to the point where as they're building the wall, they have to keep one hand with their weapon and they're building the wall with the other. And they're removing the, the, the rubble from the wall that was destroyed originally when they first got exiled by the Babylonians. When they destroyed the whole city is nothing but ruins. And so they're getting all of this done. And day and night and night and day they're working. They don't change their clothes except to quickly wash them. They're on alert and they are wearing out as you can imagine. There's a limited number of people. And it's a big wall. They're building it around the entire city, and so they are protecting themselves. Remember, as I said, Jerusalem is the seat of God. It's the place in which God had chosen to set up His kingdom. 
Now when the people left, the Shekinah glory went with them. He didn't just stay in the temple, it went with them. It followed them around, but this is where they wanted to be. And no self-respecting city went without a wall. As I said last week, it's like driving there to the east, and, and, or excuse me, to the, yeah, yeah, to the east. No, the west. Which direction am I going here? I'm all turned around. We're heading towards Auburn, folks, whatever direction that is. And, and when you get there, that's west. Okay, I'm all right. It's a good day. I'm going to switch to decaf soon, I promise. Okay. But that when you're heading that way and you drive over those railroad tracks and you blink and you miss the, the town, right? I mean, there's just nothing there. That's how Jerusalem had become. And this Jerusalem was everything to a Jewish man. So this is something that Nehemiah took extremely seriously. And he knew that God was going to allow him to do this and that God had given him the calling to do this. Therefore, he's given him the ability to do that. And he's created the provisions for it. And that no matter what came against him, it would not prosper. He was going to complete this task. So with all of that being said, let's jump into Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Now remember, they just got the wall done there. The the whole plan to thwart everything had come to nothing. They caught wind of it. The wall is getting built. Here we go. Verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. For there were those who said... We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and we may live. There are also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Now, prior to this moment, all of the attacks were coming from the outside in. But suddenly, you see an uproar inside the city itself going from the inside out. It's no different than it is today. Inside of a church, the attacks from the outside have very little effect. They're more of an annoyance. The ones that destroy them are from the inside out. And that's what's going on. There's a famine that's going on. There's something that's happened. So they're struggling. And you know it's bad because it's not just the men of Jerusalem that are creating an uproar. It's the women are involved too. That's how bad it is. And they don't typically do that. They They stayed back. But they have mortgaged their land to buy grain. They have borrowed money in order to pay the taxes, and the taxes were steep in this land. They had to sell their children in what we would call, it says slavery, but it's indentured servitude. And they don't have the money to redeem them. Now with that, there's a seven-year limit on it. We've talked about this before. But at the end of the seven years, they're released. Typically, they could stay past that point if they wanted to. And a lot of times they chose it because they were taken care of. You know, three hots and a cot. I mean, they had a place to live and food to eat. So it was taken care of. But they cannot redeem them. And what you have here and what's going on underneath the text is this just isn't simply going down to the local bank saying, can I borrow a few bucks to get me through to the end of the month? You have Jewish rich men who are preying on these poor people. Now, this is against the law, the, the, the uh, Mosaic law, because they're overcharging the people who are in distress. They're taking advantage of this situation, just like those evil banks that are out there, right? All of them. They're evil. They just take advantage of you. I'm just kidding. But in Exodus 22, verse 25, it says, if you lend money to any of my people with you, with you who is poor and shall not be like a money lender to him, you shall not exact interest from him. When they loan money to a fellow Jew, 
You don't charge them interest. You're helping them out. Gentile is another story, but not a Jew. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. It's not a hand out. You will receive it back but not with interest on it. And you notice the key part there is in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Right? In other words, you got it because I gave it to you. You show that same compassion, that same mercy to somebody who is struggling. The idea here is do not take advantage of the situation. It wasn't the loans that were bad. We're loaning money to people who couldn't pay it back and taking advantage of the situation. And we call that usury. Verse 6, and I became very angry, this is Nehemiah, when I heard their outcry on these words, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother, so I called the great assembly against him. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundred of the money of the, and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Nehemiah's ticked off. He is mad. I mean, in the King James and the New King James, it always sounds so eloquent. Oh, you evil person, how dareth you doeth that? I mean, but I mean, he's mad. He is not happy here. The nation is trying to make a comeback, right? They've got the temple built. That's operation number one. Now they're building the wall in which they can control who's coming in and going out. And yet you've got people taking advantage of their own people. They're not helping them out. They're harming them. And so, of course, this is going to create a divide among the people. This is a bad situation. They're poor because of the famine. They're, not, they're building the wall. They don't have time to go and harvest the crops, to plant the crops, although it doesn't take a long time to build this wall. The bottom line is, is that they're all focused on one thing, and yet you've got a bunch of people who are well off taking advantage of that situation. They jumped on an opportunity to put a little money in their pocket. Now, it says that Nehemiah, as well as some others, had actually redeemed some slaves. They've taken them back. They bought them back. They redeemed them. It's the exact same word when it talks about Jesus redeeming us. They, they took care of it. They paid in full. This would have been from the Assyrians that they would often sell themselves into this. Don't think slavery like the U.S. slave trade that happened way back when. This is completely different. They were paid money, and then until they could pay that back, they remained a servant. Or in lieu of money, they would remain a servant until a certain amount of time which was agreed upon but they were taking them as slaves and and it says will you sell them to the foreigners are you going to sell them to the assyrians because how do you turn a profit you got to sell them you got to move them on so nehemiah and the others they were lending money they were lending grain but they were not charging them interest they were not taking advantage of the poor it was the surplus from their surplus that they were able to do this and help them out and so he demands that they stop it immediately and restore everything to them that was taken because this is wrong if it's a nation of laws and it was a theocracy if you will that god ordained these laws and how you're going to take care of your people and these guys were wrong and as you've seen as we've gone through the entire old testament this isn't the first time they've done this 
this happens time and time again. Verse 12, so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they should do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. Nehemiah gets their attention and they agree, Okay, we will restore it. You know how simple it would be is that when somebody, a a man of God, a word of God comes to you, if we're just quick to obey it, when we get off track. You saw that with King David. He said he's a man after God's own heart. Why? David got off in a lot of areas, but boy, when he got called out on, he was quick to repent and make it right. So as an example here, Nehemiah uses his cloak of what's going to happen if you don't. And this is very common because they didn't have pockets. So when they wore these cloaks, they would fold them in a certain way that would create these pockets, and they would keep their stuff in it. And so he shakes out the folds of his garment, and he says, this is what God's going to do to you. And I'm sure he left the stuff in there, and when he shook it out, it just scatters everywhere. And this is how they would do it. They keep their their items in and all of that. And Paul talks about the same thing in Acts chapter 18, is that he shook out his garment on these people, what was going on here. So it's very common. They get it. That God is going to do to you if you do not make this right. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people." Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. Now, this is Nehemiah. He's talking back here in this story. It's going back. Nehemiah is the governor for 12 years over Jerusalem. He's put there by the king. And in all that time, he doesn't take anything from the people. And he's allowed to. The government allows him to do this. It was within his right as the governor of a Persian territory to collect taxes to take things from people, and to use a portion of those taxes for his provisions. We know of two governors by name prior to him. There were likely others, but Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. And it says that they did take bread, they did take wine, they did take the 40 shekels of silver, which is no small amount. As well as there's you know probably other guys that did this. But he didn't do it. And why didn't he do it? It says because he feared God. Now, what does that mean? It's not that he's afraid that lightning from heaven is going to come down and strike him if he does it. It's a respect. It's an awe. In other words, I don't need to do this because the taxes on these people from the Persian authorities is great anyway. I mean, they were always at war and they were always building stuff. And both of those took a lot of money. When the story of Esther, when they're sitting on the golden couch, the way that's written, it's made of solid gold with some nice cushions on it. How about that at your house, right? little Liberace going on or something. 
But he, he didn't take advantage of the opportunity. He feared the Lord. He knew the Lord would provide for him. And of course he did. Because he had the opportunity here to really pat his pocket. Because during this famine, he could have been out there buying land. He could have been taking money from the people, buying up these other land, and really creating a, a, a stranglehold on the people. But that's not what he was there to do. He feared the Lord. And so on top of all of this, he's feeding 150 Jews a day, plus whoever else happened to be coming through. He didn't want to be a burden on the people. He is giving out. So here he has the opportunity of which he could just be self-serving, and yet he does the exact opposite, all because he feared the Lord. He didn't want to be a burden on him. And then he utters this very simple prayer in verse 19. It says, remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this, prayer, this people. Now this prayer is an allusion back to the curses and the blessing of the covenant with Israel. But he is anticipating the favor of God because of how he treated his brethren. This is the fear of the Lord. I do this because I respect what the Lord has laid out and the, the governance in which he's put in place, more so than what the secular government affords me to be able to do. He's more concerned with that. He doesn't want to be a burden on his people. He wants to take care of them. He wants to serve them because they are all there with him, helping him do what God has called him to do. God is not self-seeking, and people of God should not be either. We are there. We serve like Jesus. I don't want to get off on a tangent. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung doors in the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Now there's a lot going on here. This is the same cast of characters that's been causing problems from before. Now look at it. Early on, outside-in problems, right? Now we've got inside-out problems. And he just took care of that. What happens immediately after that? Outside-in again. It's the circle of life. A little Lion King action for you this morning. He says that the wall is built, but the doors aren't up yet. They haven't got them hung. And they're trying to get Nehemiah to go outside the city. He says to the plain of Anno. This is also known, depending on, on your translation, you might say the Valley of Craftsmen. Okay? Either way. It's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, so it's not too far away. But it was originally part of the tribe of Benjamin. So it was originally part there. But it says that he sent an open letter. They go to him four different times. He turns it down. The fifth time, he sends an open letter saying, listen, all of these things are coming about. We're hearing these rumors. It's going to get reported to the king. They all serve the same king. It's all part of the Persian territory here. Now, this open letter, most of the time during this time when they would write a letter, it would be on papyrus or it would be on leather. 
and it would be rolled up, it would be tied up, and then it would be sealed with wax. But an open letter was carried basically out in the open so anybody who wanted to read it could read it, including the, the messenger who was simply delivering it. And there was a reason for this, is that he wanted everybody to know what was going on. He's trying to strike fear in the hearts of not only Nehemiah, but the people. Because if he can get them to think, because what happens if the king gets word that you are trying to rebel? He'll squash it, and likely you with it. He'll take care of it all. They didn't want it private. They wanted it. They wanted everybody to be afraid. And it says that their hands will be weakened by this. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom. But it means to demoralize them, right? That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get in their head, basically. What is Nehemiah's response at the end of this? Of course, he calls them out and says, this is all lies. Do whatever you want. But he prays to God. He says, oh, God, strengthen my hands. That's what he's looking for. He doesn't even care. He's not even worried about these guys. Look what happens next, verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So we see again the same names. Sanballat, Tobiah, doesn't mention the Arab this time, but they're trying to get Nehemiah out of the way. And this time you may have noticed that Tobiah's name was mentioned first. Now most of the time it's Sanballat, then Tobiah. This time it's flipped around. And a lot of times, and this is the only second time that it's going to happen that way, But this means that it was very likely his idea. He was hired, and you're going to see that play out a little further down. But they hire this guy named Shemaiah. He says he's a secret informer. He's a spy. He's trying to get to him. And so he tells them that they're after you, Nehemiah. They're coming to get you. They're coming at night. Let's go into the temple, and let's hide. We'll close the doors of the temple, and that you can hide, and you'll be safe. And then he makes a statement, which is kind of odd, and on the surface doesn't make a lot of sense. He said, should a man such as I go into the temple? He says, I don't think so. But here's the thing with Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. The priest went in the temple, not the lay people. He knew his position. And even to protect his life, even if he believed this, he's not willing to break the law in order to do that. He's willing to lay down his life if he has to. So he refused because the laymen are not allowed in the temple, and he knew it. And he perceives that this man is not a prophet from God. This is not somebody that he needs to worry about. They're trying to get him to sin because then they can have something to speak against him. And yet, he doesn't do it. Now picture Jesus just for a moment. I'm just going to rabbit trail here for a second. What does Jesus do when they're bringing the accusation and they're trying to get him to say something? He says nothing, right? Okay. But you have the second prayer that Nehemiah says here. It says, remember the works of Tobiah and Sanballat, as well as the prophet Noadiah, as well as the other prophets who were in their camp. I mean, all of these people. Now, there are only three other women that are mentioned in the Bible as prophetess, prophetesses or something like that. You got Miriam in Exodus 15. You got Deborah, who's one of the judges in Judges 4. And you got Huldah in 2 Kings 22. 
Now, rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, would give you four other names. They'd say Sarah, Hannah, Abigail, and Esther, but the Bible itself does not mention them as a prophet, so to speak. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Noadiah other than she is in a small group and she is on the wrong side of God in this situation. Not a good place to be. But the bottom line here is that all that they're trying to do is they're trying to thwart the plan of God. And Nehemiah is not falling. He has got what we call tunnel vision. He is completely focused on what God told him to do. And all of these attacks that are coming from all around him, everywhere that possibly could go wrong, he's making sure that nothing thwarts what God wants to do. Let's look at verse 15. So the wall was finished. And on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days... And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Now, the wall's done. The wall's been built. Donald Trump would be at peace right now because the wall's finished, right? How long did it take? 52 days, y'all. That's a big wall that they built. This is before the days of government bureaucracy. It'd take 52 years if we tried to do it today but 52 days. And so most can't see this as anything possible, right? They'll say, no, there's no way they built all of that in 52 days. Josephus said that it took two years and four months. He was a Jewish historian. Remember, just because it's written down doesn't always make it true. The Bible says 52 days. We'll go with that. There is no reason for Josephus' thought other than 52 days just seems too short. Archaeological evidence confirms that it was, it doesn't say 52 days exactly, but it confirms the biblical text that it was a short amount of time. In other words, they got after it. I mean, you imagine a crew of people working 24 hours a day building this wall. You can get a lot done. Now, this wall was rough. They found this wall. Okay, they found it. It was not pretty. It did not have, you know, Art Deco carved into the side of it. It's nothing like that, that bridge up in Council Bluffs where, you know, you drive under and it's got all the, that nasty looking metal. I always told my, my son loves it for whatever reason, but I always said it looks like they went to the junkyard and turned the magnet on and whatever sucked up against it, they welded together and stuck on the bridge. But whatever. So it doesn't have any pretty art with it. It's a rough wall, but the wall has a purpose. It's not there to be pretty. It's to control who gets in and who goes out. And so they had to hurry because they are being attacked. And a lot of stuff goes down in this 52-day span. I mean, you see, once again, all of this stuff going on. But with the completion, the surrounding nations are not happy. Right? They are not happy about it. It says some people of Judah were pledged to Tobiah. And that they're sending letters to him and letting him know what's going on with Nehemiah. So initially, we have attacks from the outside in. And then we've got problems from the inside that are working out. And then it flips around again. From the outside in, they're attacking. Now the wall's done. What do you got? A bunch of people pledged to the enemy that are causing problems from the inside out again. How would you like to be Nehemiah? Just take a day off, right? He doesn't even know who he can trust anymore. I mean, there's just so much going on, guys. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then it was... When the wall was built that I, and I had hung the doors, which is always a good thing to do, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, and I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. 
And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut the bar and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. He puts this Hanani in charge. Now, who is Hanani? He's the guy that started it all. He's the guy that went from Jerusalem and told Nehemiah initially of all that was going on. He was the guy in the very beginning. So he's been there by his side from the word go. From this point, they look at Jerusalem, and God puts it in the heart of Nehemiah. We've got to rebuild the city. And that's what's going to happen from here on out. Because the houses are still destroyed. I mean, there's a few of them, but the whole city was rubble. Not just the wall, not just the temple. And so, as they put all of these things together, they've got the temple, or the, excuse me, the wall built. The doors are up. They've assigned all the people. And then it makes a strange statement. It's like, don't open the gates until the sun gets hot right? Now, normally they'd open it at sunrise, first thing in the morning, but they are, they're just making sure everything's in place. In other words, it's the noonish, and they're closing it early. They are controlling even more so who's getting in and out. So they've got all these people in place, everything that's going on. And then from here, it goes into this huge, long genealogy to show a list that's almost identical to Ezra chapter 2 with the people who had traveled back to Jerusalem, they're trying to set up, they're getting, they're getting the nation restored is what they're doing. And there are positions that, that, of power, and everybody had a job to do. The Levites were the priests. And there were several people that were claiming priesthood, this Levitical dynasty, but they couldn't trace it back. And so they weren't allowed to serve as priests. I mean, they were getting things back in order to the way that it originally was. In Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Not just Jerusalem, but back getting back to the kingdom now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with the understanding on the first day of the seventh month then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and women, those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra, the scribe, stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mathathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left hand were Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, I can't talk, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadijah, Mysiah, Kiliatha, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pali, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. It really makes me wish that it was Susie, James, Ralph, Frank. I mean, come on. All right. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portion to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now this is the seventh month, which in the Hebrew calendar is the month of Tishri. We're in the year 444 B.C. We are six days after the wall is completed. They are not letting any dirt settle underneath their feet. They are constantly getting things set back up. With the wall being complete, it's all finished. Now it's time to turn to the task of renewing their commitment to Yahweh. They have been in a pagan land for many years. Even when they come back to worship God, they still don't do it right. So they are getting everything done. It's the first day of the seventh month, and they ask Ezra to read to them the law of Moses, which would be their Bible, essentially. This symbolically marks the moment when the people receive God's law from Moses. And they commit to it just as their forefathers had done. When he brings that law down, they say, yes, we will do it. We agree. Amen. It's the same thing here that is going on. It says that the people are weeping at the reading of the law. It says they bowed their head, but more significantly, they're lying prostrate before the Lord. They are down on their knees, down on their faces, crying before God. And it says that the priests, there's a a significant number of priests, all those weird names that I just read you, around because not everybody understands what is being said. So they are explaining it, which is what their job was to, to do. So they're understanding what is being said and they're helping them. And they're realizing in this moment, part of the reason they're weeping is because all of this has taken place because of their failure to keep God's commands. This is, they're their own worst enemies. So they're realizing how much they missed it, how much their forefathers had missed it, and everything that's going on. And once again, they are committing to the commands of God, and they are renewing this covenant that God had made with them when Moses was around. They are renewing this. And from here, they're, about to, they're celebrating what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. And that is what's going on here. Now, we're not going to talk about this because in two weeks, we'll begin talking about all the feasts. There's seven of them, and then there's two that aren't ordained necessarily, but we're going to explain those as well, that you're going to find Christ in all of those. So that's kind of uh, uh, the Emmaus Road Part B, if you will, but it's not going to take a year, I promise. It'll only take a few weeks. But... That's what they're doing. That's why he says the day is holy because this is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's just Christ coming down and he tabernacled among us, okay? So from here to the end of the book, they renew the covenant and they seal it. Everything seems to be going well. They decide who specifically will occupy Jerusalem versus the other parts of the territory, trying to figure out which tribe they were from and all of this other stuff. Two days at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, all the people are gathered together and a prayer is offered once again for the nation of Israel, and it goes through this entire history of Israel. And I'm going to read this for a moment. This is Nehemiah chapter 9, but I I just think it's so powerful because, once again, it sums up everything, and that's what I love about it. So it's going to be a lot of reading, but, but bear with me here. 
So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5 says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all, the host of heavens worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the year of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against him, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep and as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinance and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hands of Moses, your servants. You gave them bread from heaven from their hunger, and you brought them water out of their rock for their thirst and told them to go and to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks, and they did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you out of Egypt and were great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light, and that they should go. You also gave your, blood, your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets, who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven according to your abundant mercies. You gave them deliveries who saved them from the hand of their enemies." But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, 
you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them, that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly. They did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For your God, you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen on us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in the kingdom, nor in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounties, here we are, servants in it and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure and we are in great distress and because of all this we make a sure covenant and write it our leaders our levites and our priests seal it let me catch my breath for a moment i mean how powerful is that it's incredible, absolutely incredible that they just go through and they lay it out. And yet not once did they blame God for their troubles, not once. And yet today when we don't get what we want, we blame God for our problems. When we're being persecuted, we wonder, why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? When things don't go the way that we think they should, we turn to God and say, God, this is your fault. Why didn't you do it? And yet they never once blamed. They knew. You know, there's, there's an argument out there that you've got, in the Old Testament, a God of judgment, in the New Testament, a God of mercy, and yet, how many years of mercy? He never wiped them out, even though they deserved it. They broke His commandments. There was a deal that was made. You do this, you'll be good. You don't do this, you'll have problems. What do you want to do? They said, yes, we'll do it. And because of their sin and their unwavering ability to, to stick with what God had said to do. They faced all of this, and now they're underneath the, the kingdom of a, of a foreign dignitary that is now taking their land and taking their cattle and taking all of this thing, but yet they are now renewing this covenant with God. And that's what's going on here. It's powerful how the people come back, and I wish the story ended here, but unfortunately it does not. Oh, I'm with you. Because everything seems to be going well. And at this point, Nehemiah returns to Artaxerxes, the king, just as he had promised he would do. It's 433 B.C. Twelve years after he had left, he, the wall is complete. The nation is in good hands. Everything is going well. They have reconfirmed their commitment to God. So he returns there, and he'll be there about a year before he's released to go back to Jerusalem to once again reign as the governor. And when you think after 12 months, after everything they've been through, he'd be returning to a people that are keeping the commands and keeping the covenant and are fearful of Yahweh, they're right back at what they were doing. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. They were operating the wine presses. 
on the Sabbath day and delivering it. They're marrying foreign wives, again, against this. Eliashib, who was the high priest, he was over the storerooms. He was in charge of that, uh, of the temple. Remember, in the temple is huge, and they had all these storerooms, and we talked about that when we went through the temple. But Eliashib, the high priest of Jerusalem, has allied with Tobiah. And in this temple, he gives Tobiah this large room. He allows Eliashib's son to marry the daughter of Sanballat, the enemy of Jerusalem. So in all of this, they allowed these pagan things to be brought into the temple. And Nehemiah, this is what he returns to 12 months later, guys. One year. They could not keep up with it for one year with everything they'd been through. And they just recited everything that happened to their forefathers because they didn't keep the commands of God. Within one year, they're right back where they were. Nehemiah returns and he attempts to clean everything up. His final words in the book of Nehemiah, it says, Remember me, O my God. Good because Nehemiah never wavered. Never wavered. He was faithful to the Lord all the way to the end. Even though the people weren't around him, he was. In the land that should be fearing God and should be serving him, they weren't, but he was. He begins to clean things up. He's getting things right. He was kind of a, a reformer once again. He had to reform what had been reformed and after it had been reformed. But and this here is pretty much the end of the Jewish history before we go into what we call the silent years, right before the beginning of the New Testament, right before Jesus comes on the scene. There's 400 years which are silent, in which the prophets do not speak, and the word of the Lord is not with the people. They're not talking to them. But this was actually written down in advance in the book of Daniel. In fact, it was with such accuracy is one of the arguments against the book of Daniel. There was no way this thing was written hundreds of years in advance of this taking place because it is so precise. There's no evidence that it was written late, but there's just no way possible from a natural standpoint. At the end of the silent period, when this all ends, when this all happens, is the birth of the long-awaited Messiah when Jesus steps into his creation. And this is where we're going to end it next week, guys. Is when it all comes together. Over a year of looking into this, it's all going to come together with one main point. Where is Christ in all of this? And we've talked about it as we went. But we're going to land this plane. It's going to be powerful. And you guys, it, it should renew your commitment to the Lord like never before. When you see this all come to a head. When you see everything that the Lord did and dealt with to get to where we are today. Because without all the stuff that we've gone through, you and I are not having the conversation we're having. God's good, amen.